Thanks, team. After Jesus had entered Jerusalem with his disciples after the, the triumphal entry, it's become known as that, uh, when Jesus came into the, into the city of Jerusalem about a week before he was crucified, riding on a little colt, the foal of a, a donkey. And um, just after that, Jesus was worshipping with his disciples in the, the temple area. And as they, they walked out, the disciples called Jesus' attention to the, the great buildings of the city. I want you to imagine the, the scene. These, are guys, these guys are from Galilee, and on, on their whole, they're kind of country guys, fishermen, who've come to the, the big city. And uh, they're admiring the lavish, impressive buildings. And Jesus said to them, do you see all of these things? I, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every single one of them will be thrown down. And the disciples and Jesus, they walked out of Jerusalem, they, they crossed the Kidron Valley, and then they walked up onto the Mount of Olives, an area just outside of, of Jerusalem where Jesus liked to pray. And they went into um, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would ultimately, a little while later, be arrested, and the night before he was put to death. And uh, as Jesus sat there in, in the garden, the disciples came to him, and they'd obviously been talking about, what did he really mean? I mean, was he just speaking figuratively about all of those buildings being torn down? Or what did he mean? And he, they came to him and they said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They'd obviously been thinking about what had just been said to them. And Jesus had prophesied about Jerusalem and specifically the temple, about what was going to happen and it was going to be totally destroyed. Not one stone was going to be left on another. And uh, so they're asking, when is this going to happen? Well, Jesus gave them quite a long answer. I mean, it really is an amazing passage of Scripture. We're not going to read it all today, but you can read it in, in Matthew 24. He told them a lot about what would happen at the end of the world. And he was obviously speaking about things that would happen not that far down the track, only about 40 years later, in fact, the Romans invaded Jerusalem and, in fact, completely destroyed the temple. It, it was absolutely destroyed, as Jesus had said. But he was also talking about the end times as well, and he was talking about figuratively about the temple now being done away with because he was about to offer the final sacrifice. He, Jesus said that there would be imposters, people claiming to be him, but who weren't him. He said that there would be wars and rumours of wars. He said that there would be natural disasters, famines and earthquakes. He said that there would be a great persecution of believers and many of them would be put to death for their faith in him. He said that there would be an increase in wickedness and the love of most would grow cold. He also said that the good news about the kingdom of God would be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end would come. He said that there would be a great period of distress such as the world has never ever seen or will ever see again. Then Jesus would return. He said his return would be like lightning flashing across the sky, that all the world would see his return. Jesus also said that no one knows the hour or the day of his return apart from his heavenly Father. He said that it will be like in the days of Noah when people were just going about their business 
And then, unaware of what was about to happen, suddenly they were swept to their deaths by a flood sent by God. Jesus said, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And Jesus then told them three stories. He told them lots of stories. Jesus told them three stories when they asked him this question about when is all of this going to happen? The first one, he told them the parable, what has become known as the parable of the ten virgins. Then he told them the parable of the talents and the story of the sheep and the goats. Well, today I want to look at just the middle one, the parable of the talents. This is a really important story which Jesus told. And I must say, it's a very challenging story, or certainly it was for me. It's a story that really had a huge impact on my life as a young man. In a lot of ways, this story changed the course of my life. When I think back, we were, Louise and I were part of a, a music group that used to travel all over New South Wales. In fact, we came to this very church when I was about 15. I remember standing on this stage acting out because part of the whole big program we did, a few of us were in this drama of the parable of the talents. And I remember actually acting this out with a few other guys um, on this very stage when I was about Jordan's age. And um, it did. When you, when you rehearse something over and over, it kind of gets in. And this story had a huge impact on my life. So let's dive into it. If you have your Bible, it's in Matthew 25. It'll be up here on the screen. Let me read you the story which Jesus told. Again, in other words, he's already told another story. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who'd received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the, the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with two talents. See if I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he who has an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What would you do 
if someone gave you a million dollars for 10 years? You'd have to give it back. You'd have to give back the million, but you could decide how it would be used throughout that period. What would you do? I mean, I, I guess you'd have to work out a way of ensuring that the original amount was kept safe, that it was secure. I mean, you couldn't risk losing it, could you? You'd need to see the, the huge responsibility that was yours and appreciate just how much this person had trusted you. You need to look for the best way to grow this person's money and then do it. You'd have to actually do it, wouldn't you? There'd be no time to waste. In the ancient world, it's very important that we get this, in the ancient world, a talent was a measure of money. I've heard people over the years talk about this as though it's kind of like your talent to play the piano or something. That's got nothing to do with it. A talent is a measure of money in the first century, okay? It's a bag of money. If you look in the new translations, they'll call this the parable of the bags of money. It's not talking about your giftedness. The trouble is that you say, oh, no, but I don't have any talents. God hasn't given me any talents. I can't play the piano or sing or anything. No, it's got nothing to do with that, okay? A talent is a measure of money. And there's much debate about exactly how much it was equal to in today's money. You see, whenever we read an ancient story, we really need to understand when someone makes a statement like that about giving someone five talents of money, you've got to know, is he talking about giving them ten bucks or a million bucks? Because it changes the story, doesn't it? It really does. So we need to know, well, how much money are we talking about? The problem is that if you read a commentary written in, say, the 70s, because of inflation, the money figures just mean absolutely nothing at all. Now, this bloke, Don Carson, who is probably the, the foremost New Testament scholar in the world today, says, a talent in the first century was approximately equal to the wages earned by a day labourer in 20 years. Just let that settle in, get in your head, okay? That's a lot of money, isn't it? Now, if we just pick a figure out of the air, 50,000, just say we said $50,000 was what a day labourer might earn in a year, multiply that by 20 years, we're talking about one talent in today's money is equivalent to a million dollars. It's a significant amount of money, okay? The guy who receives five talents is given the equivalent of $5 million. The guy's got two, $2 million. I mean, even half of those amounts is a huge amount of money. The master's going on a journey. In the ancient world, any journey, pretty much any journey you took, took a long time. Months or years away would not be at all uncommon. So... Servants and slaves were often given an enormous amount of authority and responsibility in managing the master's resources while they were away. And that's exactly the situation in Jesus' story. The master calls the first servant, gives him five talents. To the second, he gives two. To the last one, he gives one. Each of them, even the guy that's given one, is given the equivalent of a million dollars. It's a lot of money more than enough to provide for their own needs in his absence and more than enough to invest it and grow it and make something of it for the master. They were given, if you actually think about it, what they were given was a great opportunity. 
a kind of once-in-a-lifetime type of opportunity. Something most people would love to have been given, how it, it did come with an expectation. An expectation that they would use the money wisely. So what did they do? Well, the first servant immediately took the five talents. Jesus very clearly says he went at once. He didn't sit on it. He moved quickly as soon as he could. As soon as he could, he turned the master's five talents into ten. Second servant did the same thing. He'd been given two and he too was able to make a profit. Two talents were doubled. He has four. But what about the third servant? What did he do? It says, but the man who'd received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. He dug a hole in the ground. He just wanted to keep it safe. I guess he could be commended for doing that. But that was all. And after a long time, we aren't told how long exactly, simply a long time. After a long time, the master returned and he settled accounts with the three servants. He'd obviously been concerned about what's been happening over all this time with his investments. That's natural. He wants to know how well they have done. Immediately he calls in to settle his account. First servant comes in. How did you go? How did you go? What have you done with all that I gave you, said the master. And proudly the first servant declares, I've doubled them. I've doubled the five talents you gave me. Here's another five back. Here's ten. Very pleased, the master says, well done. Good, faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share in my happiness. Second, second servant has exactly the same experience. These guys have proved their faithfulness to the master. Now I want you to notice how they were rewarded. They're rewarded in a couple of ways. The first thing is they received the master's congratulations. Well done. Good and faithful servant. In other words, they got a pat on the back. They got a pat on the back. And let me tell you, in Jesus' story, the master is always God. And if you actually think about it, what better thing could there be in the whole universe than the creator of the universe saying, well done, good, faithful servant? And then the second thing is, they would actually receive even greater responsibility. They'd been faithful with just a few things. They would now be put in charge of many things. This is such an important kingdom of God principle, isn't it? Faithful service actually leads to more responsibility. If you want to be used by God, if you want God to bless you with significant ministry opportunities. I've seen people over the years, they say, no, 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 that's too small for me. I want a challenge. I want something big. Give me something really big. Haven't proved themselves with anything small yet. I want something really big. Take the ministry opportunities which the Lord gives you that he places right before you. Serve him faithfully. And as you do that, he will open up further opportunities and broaden your influence and impact within the kingdom of God. Number three, they would share in the master's happiness. Now, we don't know what the master was doing on his journey. We're not told that. Maybe he'd brought back much wealth and prosperity. Whatever it was, whatever he brought back, there is no doubt there will be significant rewards for them. Now, I want to make this very clear. God has so much in store for us. 
But this in no way is talking about how we might earn our salvation. You don't do this stuff in order to earn a good and right standing with God. That is actually given to us by grace. But the Bible is very clear that once that has happened, once you're in right standing with God, there are significant rewards that flow from that. And we don't know all the details about, about what they are, but I do know this. God always gives good gifts. God always gives good gifts. Okay, so what else does the story teach us? The first thing is that we learn is that we are entrusted with things, gifts from God, and I really want you to get this, which are not ours. We are given gifts. The Bible says each of us, we're given gifts. God gives some to this one, some to that one, different, different gifts. But we are given them and they are not ours. They are entrusted to us. They come from the Lord, they are his, yet we are entrusted with them, not for our sake, but for his sake. 1 Corinthians 10 says, For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The whole universe is the Lord's. Everything is his, made by him and made for him. So important we remember that. Apostle Paul said, this is 1 Corinthians 6, he says, You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That price was the most valuable thing in the whole scheme of things, the whole universe, the life of the Son of God. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. That's what Paul says. Honour the Lord with all that you have. And then in Romans 12, he says, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. And you can see up there he mentions just some of the gifts. Prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others. Generously giving is an opportunity. That is a gift for us to do that. Leadership. Showing mercy. That's just a handful. There's a whole lot more that we could talk about. The whole point is that we are different, given different gifts according to the grace of God. You know, there are a number of passages that speak of God's gifts, his spiritual gifts given to believers. We're all given a gift from God. Not some of us, but all of us, as I said before. Do you know many of us? Many of us do not know our gift Mix. We don't know. That's true, isn't it? I mean, if I went around the room today, I'm not going to do it, so don't stress, but if I went around the room and asked some questions, sadly, there would be probably quite a lot of people who would just go, I don't know. I don't know. Let me ask you this. How are you ever going to give an account for what God has entrusted you with you if you stand before him and say, oh, I didn't even know I had that? He's going to call account. What have you done with the gift I gave you? It is not an adequate excuse to say, oh, I didn't know. To me, that sounds like burying it in the ground, doesn't it? How can you use the gift God has given you if you are unaware of what has been entrusted to you? How can you be prepared for the day when God will ask you, what have you done with the gifts I gave you if you haven't bothered to discover them? It is so important that we understand ourselves, how God has uniquely wired us, and that you use your gifts for his glory and that you continue to remember 
that those gifts are not yours. They are his entrusted to you for his sake rather than for yours. Second thing is that even though he may be a long time coming, I want to underline this. The story teaches us the master will return. The master will return. And when he does, he will want to know what we, his servants, have done with the gifts entrusted to our care. It says in James, this is the Lord's blood brother that he grew up with who writes this. He says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. You know, I had someone say to me once, oh, but the whole thing is that you know, he wrote that and it's now been 2,000 years we've been waiting. I said, mate, no one waits 2,000 years. No one has waited 2,000 years. No one's ever waited longer than their lifetime to stand before the Lord. No one has. The second thing, the Lord will return. When he does return, those who've done well will be congratulated. Well done, good and faithful servants, what Jesus says. They'll be given greater responsibility. Now, we can't really even begin to imagine what that might include. But we get a little glimpse. If you read the story we have at the opening pages of the Bible, where God places Adam and Eve, the first humans made in his image, in the garden, and he gives them great responsibility. He gives them responsibility over all of creation. And think, wow, that gives us a glimpse of what might be in store for us. But we do know that God has greater responsibility to bless us with. We don't know what is in store for the good and faithful servants. We do know this, as I said before. The reward for faithful ministry is more significant and more abundant ministry. So what about the last servant, the one who's given one talent of money? He too was called in before the master. Then the man who received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seeds. I was afraid. And I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is. I'll give him back what belongs to you. You wicked, lazy servant, the master replied. And he says, so you knew, did you? You knew something about me. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Is that what you're accusing me of? Well, then at least you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. Then he says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten. He makes this extraordinary statement. He says, for everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. You think, so that doesn't seem very fair. Let me tell you, when it comes to the things of God, he is the ultimate judge. He is absolutely just in everything he does. But when it comes to God's treatment of us, when it, when it comes to God's treatment of me, Let's forget about everyone. I want God not to be fair. I want him to be gracious. I don't want God to be just when it comes to his treatment of me. 
When it comes to grace, God does some amazing things like this, doesn't he? He does some things we go, why would you do that? But he does. You see, this guy tries to blame the master as though he had no right to entrust his servant with responsibility. He accused the master of exploiting the labour of others and placing him in a position where he risked the master's wrath as though he's saying, you did this, this is your fault. (laughs) Kind of sounds like Adam, doesn't it? The woman you gave me tempted me to do the wrong thing. And it's interesting, the master then makes this final statement. He says, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness or there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some people say, hang on a minute. Isn't that very unjust? I thought God was loving to throw someone outside into the darkness. Let me tell you, if God is the source of all life, If God is the source of all goodness, if he is light, and it says that every single human being has turned their back and walked that way, what is over there? If he is the source of all things good, if he is the source of life, if he is the source of light, out here there is nothing but death and darkness And it's interesting, he says, gnashing of teeth. I love what Bill Hybel says about gnashing of teeth. He goes, gnashing of teeth is that that, that feeling when you've bought a very expensive plane ticket and you make some bad choices on the way to the airport. You think, oh, I've got time, I'll stop off and get that coffee and a bagel. And then you miss the taxi and then you miss the flight and you arrive at the airport as your plane is leaving. That is gnashing of teeth. That is... That is deep regret. People, people say, but that's not, that's not just. Now, let me assure you, what is justice is that everyone deserves to be out there. But it's by the grace of God that anyone is not. I mean, maybe this guy was just upset because he, because he didn't receive as much as the others. I mean, very fortunate for the master that he didn't give them all an equal share. I mean, he wouldn't have done as well, would he? You see, this guy failed to see the obligation which he had to his master and the responsibility to what the master asked of him. He had a responsibility. The guy had entrusted him. And his his behaviour showed how little he actually loved the master. And he tries to cover it up by blaming the person who'd actually entrusted him with such great wealth. As a result, the talent's taken from him. I want you to notice the wicked servant is described as worthless. Worthless. Any worth we have only comes because God loves us. That's where our worth comes from. We are incredibly valuable for the simple reason that we are incredibly valuable to God. But if you walk away from God, it's like that value just disappears. We're actually valuable because God loves us so much. That God was willing to sacrifice himself for us. 
So what does the story of the wicked servant teach us? I think firstly, to fail to do good and to use what God has entrusted us with is a really terrible thing. See, it shows how little we love God. See, many people say they love God. And this guy obviously gave the impression that he was trustworthy and reliable, didn't he? However, when put to the test, his actions and his behaviour actually revealed the true nature of his heart. To fail to use the gifts given by God will result in the loss of those gifts. You know, nothing kind of breaks my heart as a pastor as seeing people who are clearly gifted in a certain area and they refuse to use it. And what I've noticed is over the years, when people refuse to use their God-given giftedness, ultimately it gets taken off them. Ultimately, they no longer have those gifts. It breaks my heart. So how do we find out what our gifts are? Well, Jesus' story warns us to look for the gifts God has given us. But how do we do that? How do we find them out? Well, the story is really about ministry. That's what the word we're going to give. Ministry, serving God and others. You know, it's one of the core purposes of our life. Is that we would serve other people. God's design for your life is that you would be involved in some kind of service, some kind of ministry. It says in Ephesians 2.10, this is a very important passage, it says, For we are God's workmanship, each of us, has been handcrafted by God, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. Not to build your own kingdom, but to do good stuff for others, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, another passage, it actually says that before God made the whole world, before he created everything, some people say that's 7,000 years ago. Other people will say that's about 13.7 billion years ago. I would suggest it's probably even longer than that. It's a pretty big God we're dealing with. Before God even created anything, the Bible says he was creating in his mind, planning good things for you and I to do. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? But that's what the Bible teaches us. Before you were born, God was preparing good stuff, ministry for you to do because he knows how much that blesses you to do it and others, obviously. So how do we discover what our gifting is and just what ministry that gifting should serve? Well, God seems to give gifts to us as, as we do it, as we serve. And that is why here at Lakes we encourage people, just give it a go. We call it first serve opportunities. Just go and have a go. If you feel that God might be calling you to something, go and try it out. Where you can just see how this kind of fits. There's a really important principle to understand with regard to the way in which God seems to lead us. Its role leads to gift, leads to ministry. Okay? As we do the role, you see there are heaps of roles that we Christians are called to perform. We're all called to witness, to tell people, yep, I love Jesus. It's that simple. We're all called to be hospitable. We're all called to, to just 
love people. That's what we're called to do. All followers of Jesus are called to perform these things. We're all called to give witness. We're all called to be hospitable to people. We're called to share God's word with our neighbours. Now, obviously, people are gifted by God to perform those ministries. But how are they going to know if God is gifting them in, say, evangelism if they never witness, they never tell anyone? Or how about hospitality if you've never had anyone over for dinner? You see, the way this works is like we're all called to be hospitable, but you may not be the best person. You may not be that someone that goes, wow, they have got a gift for hospitality. But how do you know if you never have anyone over for dinner? So what I would suggest is you just do it. You just step out and say, we'll just have some people over. See how it goes. We just start being hospitable. Maybe I'll help out on Sunday night with a cooking team. We make dinner. We'll do that. But you know what I found is as you do that, as you do that, the people of God, the family of God starts to recognise, as you do the role, they start to recognise the gift. And they'll say, hey, you've got a real knack for that. And you just say, yeah, it feels good. This feels right. And then over time, it grows into a ministry. That's how it works. You know, as Nike's old slogan says, I think it's very fitting, just do it. Just do it. Just get out there and do it. That is what this story is all about. It tells us something about the end time when the Lord returns and it asks us to give an account for our life and what we've done with our life. The story is more than simply a prophecy about the future, though. It is a warning. Don't be complacent. Don't be unprepared. I challenge you to go to your Bible, Matthew 24 and 25 during the week. It won't take long, just a couple of chapters. And pray that you would get a sense of just how urgent this is. I would say to you again, I've said to many of you over the years a number of times, don't waste your one and only life. Don't waste it. It doesn't matter where in life's journey you are. Don't say, oh, well, it's now too late for me. No, do something with what God has given you. Do it now and do it with all your heart. You know, I've told you this story, for some of you, you would have heard it a few times, but my mum's brother, my Uncle Barry, was a very gifted man, okay? He grew up in a Christian home. He knew about God. He went off to Sunday school as a, as a, as a young boy, but he was incredibly gifted with mechanical stuff. He ended up being an engineer. He worked for an oil company. But, you know, they tell stories about how when he got his first car, when he was a very young man, first thing he did was just pulled it all apart. I used to be really impressed, but then I found out it was a, a beetle. Nothing hard about pulling a beetle apart, is there, Bruce? That's what makes him so wonderful. But anyway, he was a very gifted man. But, you know, all his life, he never really worried about God. He just loved to fish and live for himself and go forward driving and he was just a very gifted, talented bloke. But then in his late 50s, he got really sick. And he ended up with asbestosis because in the oil refineries, there was all this asbestos. And then he started basically dying because he just couldn't breathe because of the asbestosis. And then his mum, my grandmother, died. And he lives in Brisbane. And I remember going up there for the funeral and sitting down with my Uncle Barry. And I guess because he knew 
My brother and I were pastors. He was so keen to talk to us about how he had found God, I guess, late in life. And he just said, you know, I knew about the Lord as a young boy, but he said, I live for myself. 50 years, basically. He lived for himself. And he said, I can't believe now I've got right with God and I can barely breathe. And he was lamenting because he knew. He said, I could have done so much. I could have done so much. He said, but in the end, I've got seven homes. In the end, I've got seven houses. And that's all I've done. I bought these homes, these investment properties. He said, I just wish I hadn't wasted my life. I tried to encourage him that he hadn't wasted his life. But he was really sad that he now met the Lord and he was saying, I could have done so much more to serve my Lord. And he died a couple of months later. It was really sad. It was really sad. Regret like that is a terrible thing. That's the gnashing of teeth kind of stuff, isn't it? Deep regret. Hmm. Don't waste your one and only life. Do something with what God has given you. For there will come a day for every single one of us where we will stand before our Creator and we'll have to give an account for what we did with what was entrusted to us. Do it now. Do it now, whatever age you're at, and do it with all your heart. Let's pray. Lord, that is a powerful story which you told so long ago. But it's a story which speaks so pointedly, in a sense, into our lives now. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working right now amongst us, kind of individualising the words that have been spoken from your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just be speaking a few words of encouragement to each of us as to just what we need to do to turn things around from where we are and that we would start walking toward you and living as you would have us live so that ultimately when we stand before you, as all of us will, you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.